Our scripture today comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of our Lord. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. How good it is to be here this morning and to sing those songs that remind us indeed of the greatness of God. Last night we were at the uh, the men's uh, wild game dinner and uh, there was some wild game there. It, it is the first time I've ever eaten groundhog. Um, I would say that and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I would think if groundhog tasted good at all, you should be pleasantly surprised. And, uh, and, and there were so many other things to eat, and what a great, great evening it was. I was standing over by the fire in this massive fireplace. Uh, there was a fire burning. Little Grayson Snyder was standing there, and I walked over, and Grayson looked up at me, and he was looking intently into the fire. And he looked up at me, and he said, why is some of the fire purple? And... Uh, I said, what do you mean? He said, look, some of it is purple and some of it is red. And so I thought, I know there's a reason. And um, I'm assuming it's that the purple is hotter than the red. And so I bent down to tell him that. And I thought he'll remember this the rest of his life. And so I looked up at Brandon Hawkins, who was standing nearby, and I said, Blue is hotter than the red, right? And, and Brandon said, yes, it is. And so I told him that. I would say to you today that looking into this passage, I feel like Grayson did last night, looking into that fire, wondering why it's different colors. We are looking deep into the heart of God, into the things of God, and I still at this point, come to a passage like today with that same wonder and awe and uh, thinking, uh, why is this this and why is that that? 
And so this morning, we are going to jump into this, and as we do, uh, you've got to understand a few things about what Margaret read for us. First of all, the word bless is where we get our word eulogy. It is to eulogize. This passage eulogizes God. Not because God is dead. We eulogize people primarily at funerals today, but uh, we also eulogize people at other times, right? At retirements, at, at significant transitions in their lives, we bless them. And this, uh, this uh, passage begins with the word bless, and that's where we get our word eulogy. But uh, let me read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Three times in one verse, eulogy or eulogize is, is said. Um, this entire passage is one sentence in the Greek. The English translations break it up with some periods just so you can understand it as you read it. But if you saw it in the original, it is one sentence. Uh, we learn in summary, this is the work of God the Father. Christ is mentioned in these verses 15 times, 15 times. The Spirit is also at work. So this is a Trinitarian God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit at work. In Him or in Christ occurs 11 times in this passage. And so in all of this then, Paul gives four reasons that you and I today should and can bless God. And so... Let's talk about those. Number one, bless God because you are adopted. Look at verses four through six. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, there is a danger here. And what is the danger? The danger here is because of the word predestined, some of you tripped up by that word, ignore the rest of the passage all right, so let me say to you, if the word predestined trips you up, just don't let it, and let's jump into the thrust of the passage. We'll get to that word. But the point that Paul is making to the Ephesian believers is that if you are born again, it is because you have been adopted into the family of God. God, by his grace, has adopted you. Adoption is what God did. Predestination is how he did it. All right, so adoption is what God did. Predestination is how he did it. If we think then of the metaphor, and that it is of adoption, uh, the only way anyone is adopted is if somebody adopts them. And the only way anyone is adopted is if they need it, right? Right? Only those without parents 
are candidates for adoption. So you cannot be adopted if somebody else claims to be and is legally your mom and your dad. But if someone else isn't or you prove yourself to be unfit as a parent, your child or you, if you're the child of those parents, are a candidate for adoption. That is what God did. You and I were orphans. Orphans, we were without spiritual heritage and spiritual parents. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you to be his son or daughter. Now, why did he do it? Look at it up here. In love, he predestined us. The motivation is love. He predestined us. Now, in our American individualism, which uh, affects so much how we view Scripture, then the question that comes to so many is, why did he choose me? Why, God, did you choose me? Could I I just challenge you on that for a moment, that that is a self-centered approach to the glorious gospel of God's choosing you and a question that Paul doesn't even address here? There is no thought as to why God chose any individual here. I'm afraid in America we take God's choice of adoption and turn it into a self-centered venture on our part because we are such a self-absorbed people. So in getting some understanding on this balance between predestination, which is clearly taught here, the, the, the choosing uh, by God of people before the foundation of the world, clearly stated here, and in our responsibility as people, I go to Spurgeon. Spurgeon, that great pastor in the 1800s in England who, who was uh, passionate about the gospel, uh, Spurgeon, who was a five-point Calvinist, if that means nothing to you, don't worry, um, but he was and yet preached uh, the gospel so much so that 16,000 people were baptized in that great church. Here's what he says, I see in one place God presiding over all in providence. And yet I see, and I cannot help seeing, that man acts as he pleases, and that God has left his actions to his own will in a great measure. We say, well, Jerry, you can't have it both ways. I I just want to say to you this morning, I believe all of Scripture from cover to cover all of it. And when we come to a place in scripture that says God chooses, I believe that. And when we come to a place in scripture that says man is responsible to respond to God, I believe that. I believe all of it. Spurgeon goes on to say, now if I were to declare that man was so free to act that there was no presence of God over his actions, I should be driven very near to atheism. And I agree. If you and I do whatever we want and God is nowhere involved, then why believe in God? 
But he says, and if on the other hand, I declare that God so overrules all things as that man is not free enough to be responsible, I'm driven at once to fatalism. There's nothing you and I can do. God has done it. We have no say in the matter. He goes on to say that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to one another. They can't. You cannot have two truths, and in the understanding of what a truth is, those truths cannot contradict one another. Otherwise, if they do, one is true and one isn't. It is not possible. It is not possible that two truths can contradict one another. All right? So we must understand that. Now, let me just speak again to our culture. Watch TV, and you will hear this phrase, uh, well, my truth, right? My truth. Guess what? You don't own a truth. You don't own a truth. Neither do I. Truth is truth is truth. Because you like it doesn't make it more true, or because you don't like it doesn't make it any less true. For example, I'm 50. That is my truth. I'm 50. But if I don't like it, guess what I still am? I'm 50. There's nothing I can do to make me 49. There's nothing I can do to make me 40. If I want to get a discount at McDonald's, I can't be 55. I'm 50. That is truth. Truth is truth is truth. He says, if then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, which is taught here, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions... That is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. I would just say to you today that I, with Grace and Snyder, do not understand the complexities of a fire burning in the fireplace. But I believe whatever truth exists around those complexities. I do not understand the complexity between a God who chooses before the foundation of the world. And that makes me unbelievably grateful to him. Unbelievably grateful. And I cannot understand my part and my responsibility balanced with his choice. But I believe both because this dear book says so. Spurgeon says, these two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. Number two, bless God because you are redeemed. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Uh, let's define redemption. Redemption is deliverance by payment of a price. And in Paul's day, usually applied to slaves. A slave, if he or she was going to be ransomed, somebody had to pay. So this calls for the question, who is the slave? 
And who is the master? And what is the price? The slave was Paul, and it is all who lived then, and the slaves are all who live now. Who or what is our master? In a spiritual sense, Satan prior to Christ is your master. No doubt. Scripture says that. You cannot serve two, right? Everybody before Christ. In a real sense, sin is your master. That's what Romans deals with, five, six, seven. Uh, Sin is your master. Sin calls the shots. Um, We, without trying, are slaves to sin, aren't we? Um, You may say again and again, "I, I won't gossip. I won't gossip. I won't gossip. And somebody comes up to you and says, did you hear? And five minutes later, what have you done? You gossiped. I won't look, I won't go, I won't do, whatever it may be. All right, so, so we are the slaves, sin, Satan, our master. What is the price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Jesus' blood is the price paid by God to free you from sin. Now, now, how much is it? How much did he pay? Look at this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Lavish. It's to superabound. That's what it means to lavish. Um. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these super fancy dinners. Um, you, you go to them and you sit down, and I've been at a few of these through the years, and they bring you your plate, and you wonder if that's your first or second bite. And, and so if you do not eat, you know, tiny uh, three-month-old baby bites, you you'll be, you know, done in about a minute and a half. And people around the table will talk about the intricacies of it. So that's not how I grew up. Uh, How I grew up is how country cooks function. Have you ever told a country cook, I just want a little bit? And they look at you like, you got to be kidding me. And what do they do? Well, you get a mound of mashed potatoes, right? That's about that big. And you get a mound of meat and you get a mound of whatever it is. If they're serving your plate, they look at you as if they're insulted. I'm not giving you a little bit. They just pile it on. That's the word lavish. The, The grace of God has been lavished on us piled onto the plate more than you ever need. A country cook will never cut a pie into more than, than eight slices, right? That would be uh, sacrilegious. They just would never do it. Uh, God's grace is not barely enough. It, it is overflowing, lavish. Hear me, you will never barely make it to heaven. Don't ever say, by the skin of my teeth. No, 
by the great lavish grace of God, you'll walk through the gates and, and you will see Jesus Christ and you will worship him because it is his blood shed on the cross because you, uh, in, in ways that maybe we'll understand, care about then, you will uh, uh, walk through those, those gates and, and realize that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Um, I love what Tim Keller says. He says, over the door of heaven, it's going to say, whosoever will may come. And he says, when you walk through, you look back over that same door and it will say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit. Uh, three, bless God because you live now, not then. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Look at this. Verses 9 and 10, maybe this has never occurred to you, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That phrase, fullness of time. If God is a planner, if God orchestrates events, and he does, the coming of Christ was perfectly timed. As a matter of fact, Galatians speaks to this. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under sin, born of a virgin. Paul writes there. Uh, historically, there's remarkable reasons that Christ came when he did. Maybe you've never sat down and studied it. I teach it in the New Testament at Montreat. Um, historically, Christ came um, at a time when there was one empire that ruled the entire known earth, Rome. A couple hundred years ahead of that, before that, Alexander the Great ruled the Greek empire, remarkable leader, and Alexander the Great advanced the Greek language everywhere. So you have one empire and one language when Christ is born. Third, trade was as advanced as it had ever been. Trade routes by sea, trade routes by land were readily available. And so travel was so incredibly facilitated for social order. The same rules in Jerusalem were the rules in Asia Minor, were the rules in Greece, were the rules in Spain, were the rules everywhere in Rome. They had the same rules everywhere. Do you know what that meant? That meant that when Christ was born, when he was preached at Pentecost, when people were there from all over the place and they began to spread out, when all of that happened, there was one language it went out in. They traveled on. Paul traveled on all these roads that were already established. There was order so he could travel without inhibition. Paul used his Roman citizenship anywhere he needed to, to, to get what he needed to get. And the gospel just went and went and went and went when the fullness of time had come. But if we go out even farther than that, what Paul is speaking to here is that all the Old Testament looked forward to what you and I look back on. They waited in anticipation for the first coming of Jesus. We stand between the first and the second. You say, how did they do that? 
The ark was such a symbol of a redeeming God who would ultimately redeem his people. The Passover lamb, Israel is in Egypt and they need to get out. They're enslaved. The Passover lamb smeared that blood on the doorposts. Don't know if it's ever occurred to you, any Egyptian who did that was spared too. Had nothing to do with the fact that they were Israelites. Everything to do with blood on the door. And and that death angel would pass over and that firstborn child would not die. I think my favorite story in the Old Testament may surprise you that points forward to an ultimate redeemer is uh, Moses is dead. Joshua's the leader. They're sending three, three men into Jericho, that massive walled city. Such a big, it was a city-state. It was huge. And they send these men in. They're going to do a reconnaissance work. And evidently, they weren't good because they got found out. So they discovered them, and when they did, they had to hide, and they hid in, in not so good a place. That would be Rahab's house. The uh, reason that wasn't so good is she ran a prostitute. She, she had prostitutes working for her. Uh, she was not a woman of good reputation, uh, and, and uh, if you're working on your reputation, that's not where you should hide out. It might be hard to convince people you were not there for other reasons, but that's where they, she hides them on the roof. And so the king's men, I mean, find where they are. These, these three spies, I don't know if they ever did anything else for Israel, but they should have been fired. Because uh, the king's men came right to Rahab's house, discovered them, and Rahab uh, lied. And said, no, they weren't here. And then she sent them and said they went that way and they went that way. It's real humorous to read it. So they go that way and then Rahab calls them down and and she does a remarkable thing. She looks at those men and she said, uh, our city is terrified. We've heard the stories about you from over there. And your journey up from Sinai, we've heard we're terrified as to what you may do here. And then she makes this remarkable statement of faith. I know that your God is the real God. And I know you're going to be victorious. So when you come in and you take our city, would you spare me and my family? Rahab, they said, yes, but this is the only way we'll know it's you. If you'll take a rope, a scarlet rope of all things, weave it together Drop it out your window. She lived in the city wall. Drop it out your window. When we come, we will, what? Pass over you. They didn't use that word, but that's what they were going to do. Um, They come, and then they said to her, Anyone in your house will be safe. 
Rahab, the missionary, goes and gets people and brings them in and says, come in to my house. Anybody in here is safe. And she and her family were spared because the men saw the scarlet rope hanging down that pointed forward to the blood of Christ. As a matter of fact, it may not occur to you that Rahab had a grandson down the way whose name was Boaz, who married Ruth, who was the great-grandmother great or grandmother, can't remember, of King David. Unbelievable. I will pass over. All of the Old Testament looked forward but to Jesus' first coming, but we look back on Jesus' first coming and look forward to his second. Maybe that's never occurred to you that you should do the same, that you should be so grateful that you look back on the old and see how it prepares for the new, and you look forward to the new, the, the new creation. How, how is that? I'm going to skip down to Romans 8, uh, 19 through 23. Uh, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's more there. not going to read it. All I'm going to say to you is while you and I groan and long for a day when life won't be like this, all of creation around you does the same. Creation around you knows that it should not be like this, that there should be a better place, a better way. Tornadoes should not be. Hurricanes should not be. These tsunamis should not be. This is not how God intended it to be. And so we look forward to a day when it will not be like this. Amen? We look forward to that. Uh, funerals say there's coming a day when no heartache will come. No more clouds in the sky. No more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day. Glorious day that will be. Amen. We look forward to that. We anticipate that. We look back on the cross. We look forward to one day when Jesus splits the skies and comes back and gets his bride to be his own. And I anticipate that day. Do you not? I look forward to that. Fourth, bless God because you live now and will live then too. It says in 11 through 14, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that's Paul and the apostles. Look at this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Let me just define two terms and we'll be done. A seal is a mark of authenticity. That's what it is. It's a mark of authenticity. That's what seals do. I saw somebody recently, it's just a major throwback with a members only jacket. All right, so if you don't know what that is, 
you were not cool back in the day. <laughs> All right. Members only jacket. I looked at that jacket and I was like, I want that. <laughs> For some reason, I just would like to wear that right now. You know, uh, we couldn't afford members only jackets when I was in, in, uh, in uh, growing up. But that just meant that was it, right? The, the Holy Spirit seals you, says, you're mine. It's not an outside thing, and I would just say to you, with all the grace I can, it's an inside job, and you say, okay, how will I know I'm sealed? Are these fruit produced in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's how you know. The second word is guarantee, and that means first installment. John Stott says, in giving him Christ to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it. All right, so I don't know why I illustrate food so much. Maybe I like it too much. But years ago, I lived with a dear, sweet woman for about five years. Her name was Jeanette Harris. Miss Harris, if, if I had not run four miles multiple days a week, I have no clue how much I weigh right now because that woman could cook. And she made homemade biscuits. She thought it was her job because I was in the ministry to make sure I never went hungry. And she cooked every day. Then in her, her late 70s, and there was a phrase that still makes my mouth water today. She'd be in the kitchen and I might be back in my room working on something or whatever, and she would say, Hot buttered biscuits. How many times do you think she said that? Oh, just once. Just once. And her biscuits were just small, flaky and fluffy on the inside. Some of you haven't had breakfast and you're like, quit. But this is what they were. And I would go in there and this was her appetizer. I'd break open that biscuit. She'd have the butter sitting out, slather me some butter on there, put it back. Hope Mandy, who directs our wellness ministry, is not listening. Put it back and eat that. That biscuit was two things. It was the pre to the meal, but it was part of the meal too. That's what a guarantee is. Stott says, it's not that God is putting an engagement ring on our finger. An engagement ring still doesn't make you married. It's that God is putting a down payment on a house. And that down payment actually pays toward the house, but says eventually you'll get the house. Well, did Jesus say that? Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that. I go to prepare a place before you. And if I go to prepare that place, I'll come back and get you and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee that better days are coming. But it is a foretaste, Stott says, of now. This morning I was praying through the sermon and, and, and was reminded of this hymn. 
Let's stand. Let's sing it out. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That's beautiful. Sing it out. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This leads to this perfect submission, perfect delight. This is that forward look, visions of rapture, now burst on my side, angels descending, bring from above, sing it out, church.
Would you bow your heads? Would you take just a few moments and bless God? Like, just thank Him for His grace toward you in Christ. Jesus, thank you. There are no words adequate. No words that can express. Paul even just went in a run-on sentence trying to get at this. Thank you that we're in the family. Yours. Thank you that not of works that I have done. Uh, thank you that nothing in our hands are bring, are, we bring simply to your cross we cling. Oh, Jesus, thank you. We go with this burning in our hearts and running through our minds. It is all from you. And now it is all in you. And one day we will see you. Jesus, we can't wait. What a day. And all God's people say, amen. As you go, two things. This week, reflect on this. Reflect. Go back. These are deep things. No way. No way any of us can grasp this in a single setting. Number two, if you're here and you are lost, would you come and talk to me, Adrian? We'd love to talk with you after service. We'll be around the front. Just find us. God bless you. Have a great day. You're sent.